0: My guest today is one of Australia's leading fund managers. He's an author, a regular economic commentator, and he's been watching the coronavirus situation unfold long before it hit the headlines. Roger Montgomery is the founder and CEO of Montgomery Investment Management. He manages money for individuals and families, and it's great to get a chance to speak to him as we watch financial markets go through a historic correction after a decade-long bull run. For all my listeners out there, I wanted to bring you a deeper look at what's going on in the share market to get insights from experts who are at the coalface, but also to explore how sustainable investments in ESG funds have performed after a decade of strong returns. And that's what we're all about here on The Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and whether financial markets will ever be the same again. Now, Roger was generous in sharing his thoughts on the coronavirus and its impacts. We dug into the government's response, as well as how small businesses and the hospitality industry can be helped through this crisis. But I also wanted to go deep on the period since the GFC of 2009, when interest rates were cut to zero. Since then, rates and wage growth have stayed low, while asset prices have headed to record highs. And I wanted to know why. But also, where we go next? as central banks around the world have fired all their ammunition and now have very few options to stimulate the economy. I really enjoyed this one and I hope you got something out of my current focus on the coronavirus and the impacts it's having on our lives and the economy. So for all the show notes, go to my website at JohnTreadgold.com and you can connect with me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or want to continue the discussion. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Roger Montgomery. Here we go. Roger, thank you for coming on the show. I'm sure your commentary is in high demand at the moment.
1: We uh, have certainly navigated this quite well, and I think uh, that that helps in terms of popularity. But but of course, when you go through a period of underperformance, you're, you're far less popular.
0: Well, that's right. You've uh, you've got to take it when you can, I guess. Uh, but look, I've been a big fan of your thinking for quite some time. My dad actually gave me your book, Valueable, many years ago. It really seeded my understanding of, of value investing, and it stayed with me as I've gone deep on analysing companies for sustainability and future proofing. So, thank you.
1: That's a pleasure. Look, I um, I, I had some clients call to say they reread the book just a few weeks ago, and. Uh, they said it was as relevant today as it was 10 years ago when I wrote it. It is a timeless idea, value investing. It's something that just, it works. Uh, As long as you're patient and your time frame's longer than a couple of years, uh, it works very, very well. Prior to the coronavirus crisis, we were underperforming using value investing principles and people thought we were a bit goofy. You know, we weren't participating in the the high beta, the high growth, no profit kind of, I call it profitless prosperity. We weren't participating in profitless prosperity. Uh, and so we were really out of step. We looked like dunces. Uh, and then, uh, of course, all of this has happened and share prices have pulled back. Uh, I warned people in the Australian all last year and, and also the year before and said, you know, these high-flying stocks that make no money, they will... Fall 60, 70, 80 percent, and now they have. People think I'm a genius, but uh, I'm not changing what I'm doing. I'm doing the same thing I've always done, and that is just to, you know, just to keep applying value investing principles. Find really good quality companies, buy them when they're cheap, and if they're not cheap, sit in cash. That's all we've done.
0: Well, that's it. It's quite a staggering correction, and and I think we're on the edge. Of a recession,
1: we're going into a recession. There's no question about that. I wonder whether we'll keep measuring it. There won't be much point.
0: Yeah, the official numbers will take a few months to come through, and it's all it's all moving so fast. They'll lose their relevance really quickly. But in terms of this crisis, which has not taken long to trickle through to the real economy, is there anything that surprised you about how the government, um, or investors, or the public have reacted?
1: I'm surprised that. You know, countries that we would regard as quite sophisticated took so long to respond. So I um, took the family skiing in Japan in January. I'd never been to Japan before and and hadn't skied overseas during the Christmas holidays for decades. And so we decided to go and and we came home with masks on our faces. So the point of that story is to say that in mid-January when we returned home, coronavirus was a real issue. We had purchased masks to wear at the airport and on the plane. So it was already happening. And when I got back, we started writing about it. We started talking about it with the investment team, thinking about how we should respond. And we started raising cash because we felt that it was going to be a pandemic and it would just be a matter of time. Uh, And there was no way that Western liberal democracies would be able to contain it. So all of that happened as expected. And the reason why I say Western liberal democracies wouldn't be able to contain it, it's because of, you know, individual rights, which are always sacrosanct. You know, the individual is more valuable than the whole. Everything that's transpired in terms of the spread through Western liberal democracies, the objection to any lockdown by people who put their individual freedoms above the community and countries where the individual freedom is much more important, none of that's surprising. What is surprising is how long it's taken for those Western liberal democracies to really ramp up their testing. So the difference between South Korea and Italy, for example, is that South Korea, perhaps because of their proximity to China, started testing very, very quickly And they started testing at scale very quickly. And that combined with the fact that they, I guess, abrogated people's individual freedoms to take their phones and use GPS to track where they had been and then to use the military to then pick out the individuals that had been close to that individual that had been um, infected and then quarantine all those people as well, They did that very quickly. So, that was a really good story of how less individual freedom or less individual privacy meant that in the case of a pandemic, you could lock it down very quickly. And so, they ended up with detection rates of only about 3.5% or 3.6% and a fatality rate of less than 1%. That's because they started testing early and they locked it down, very, quarantined very early. Now, you contrast that with Italy. We knew Italy was likely to be an issue because couldn't be 100% certain. But there's a terrific article, and everybody can find it. It's in the New Yorker magazine from 2010, and it describes how the Lombardy region of Italy was particularly uh, upset that so many Wuhan Chinese businesses were moving in, bringing over their own Chinese cheap labour not even eating at the local cafes and, and restaurants in Italy. Uh, all the food was being supplied from China and provided by Chinese catering companies. And all of this grew in Italy just so that these manufacturing plants owned by the Chinese could then send product back to China and put the very valuable or coveted Made in Italy label on the product. And so this this has been going on for a decade And of course, businessmen travelling between Wuhan and the Lombardy region of Italy brought the virus with them. And so it spread quite quickly in Italy. Once it hit a Western liberal democracy, we knew that it was going to be a disaster zone because, you know, the Italians kiss each other on both cheeks. You can't tell them what to do. It's very hard to lock them down. And they hadn't been testing. And so we knew that whatever happened in Italy, which we thought would be bad, that would inform what would happen in the United States. And the reason the US mattered was because the US and investors in the US don't really care what's happening in Wuhan, but they care very much what happens in Wichita or what happens in Washington. So Wuhan doesn't matter, Wichita and Washington really do. And once the virus hit the United States, they were so underprepared, they'd done so little testing. In fact, we were tracking their testing through January and February, And the US has a population of 330 million people. And despite 330 million people, uh, they were testing, and I kid you not, they were conducting 40, roughly 40 tests per day on average through January. And then in February, they were conducting only an average of 92 tests per day. And so they were woefully behind the rest of the world or other countries that had been infected, and you even had their president saying it was a hoax. Uh, he said it was fake news to begin with. Then he came out and said it's only one person from China. We've locked it down and everything's fine. And then, of course, down the track, Trump eventually said this is quite serious and I've always known it was quite serious and I knew before anybody else it was quite serious and I identified it before anyone else, which, of course, was not true. So the US is woefully behind and hence they're they're still likely to get a very real shock about what is going to happen there in terms of the number of people who are infected. Consequently, the range of negative outcomes in the United States is much, much greater than the positive fiscal response that we've seen and everybody knows about now. And so you've got, you know, social isolation to deal with, there's disease and death. You know, these are all headlines that are yet to hit the United States: economic contraction, depression, reliance on government intervention, you know, uncertainty about the long-term effects, the the, the information, what we call the information vacuum. Um, those are the main headlines that have yet to really hit Main Street in the United States. That will be the big issue for the U.S. and why I think there's still probably, on balance, worse to come for the U.S.
0: That was going to be my next question. They're they're lagging in so many other ways and and the economic impacts are surely also lagging. Uh, And then very interesting, uh, because I think in some places like China, they say they've got on top of it. And we can look at South Korea and Hong Kong who have managed to contain it really well. Uh, Then coming back to Australia, there are reports saying that the curve is flattening, which is terminology we all understand now, which is quite remarkable. But the US is very far behind and we won't try to get into the machinations of why Trump... Does what he does. That's an impossible issue to try and deconstruct. But I am very interested in the way you've been watching this since mid January. As you said, you'd been closer to it over in Japan. Now, I think everyone here was much more focused on the bushfires, but did you come back and get your team working on it right away?
1: Yes, we've been running a COVID 19 data project where we've been tracking the raw data. So every single day and even during the night, the guys that are up around the clock collecting the data from all of the first sources so all of the original sources so the cdc in the united states and even before the cdc we were checking data from private labs in south korea it was pretty easy they were really good about publishing their data but elsewhere in the world it's been pretty ad hoc i will say though that everyone's talking about flattening the curve and you know and and people think we're going to go back to normal pretty quickly but anyone who thinks that we get the curve flattened and we go back to work it's not going to happen like that until we've got a vaccine, we are going to be in this lockdown situation for quite some time unless governments decide to quarantine the vulnerable and then go with what we call an attempt at herd immunity. So that's where the government says, do you know what? The economy is more important. We're going to let people go back to work and get the virus and get infected and consequently." There'll be a lot of people dying, but the economy will be fine and our most vulnerable will be safe because they'll be in lockdown. The UK tried that and it was an abject disaster. And the problem that you've got is that that this disease is is so serious and the virus so virulent that you'd have far too many deaths and the healthcare system would be overwhelmed uh, and it would look like a failure. It would look like the government sent the population to the slaughter. So that's not going to happen. So flattening the curve is great but then what? You can't go back to work until a vaccine is sorted. That could be 6 months, it could be 12 months. It's going to be some time before the world goes back to normal. I don't think I don't think the market is prepared for that. I don't think investors have prepared for that. So on balance we think that the news is still going to be quite negative. There might be a few rallies in the stock market as people get optimistic, become optimistic about curve flattening and so on. They're going to realize that this is not gonna go away and uh, it's gonna take a lot longer to resolve.
0: And do you think uh, the Australian government's efforts to lock us down have been strict enough? Should we go harder?
1: They will. They've worked the population out really well. They know that if they go hard early, there'll be a riot. But if you phase it in and get people used to each phase before you initiate the next phase, people are more inclined to accept it and go with it. And that's exactly what we've seen. When Scott Morrison first suggested that people don't shake hands, everyone thought that was an absurd suggestion. Now nobody's shaking hands. You know, I get deliveries to home and that, the, you know, my teenage boys are ordering all sorts of things on the internet. I don't even know what they're ordering. And uh, that stuff turns up. But, you know, nobody's even asking me to sign. You know, they're saying, OK, I'll just, what's your name? And they walk off. I'm, I'm not having to sign for anything. Nobody wants to come close to anybody else. Nobody's interested in shaking hands. At first it was preposterous and now it's what everyone does. And it's the same with the phased phasing in of, of, um, of a lockdown. You avoid resistance by just bringing it in gradually.
0: It is staggering how quickly it's been normalised and that's a useful point about the importance of it being staggered because uh, it is important to help people adapt. But now winding back, people with long enough memories will remember the GFC and that was a crisis with the financial system at its core, but this is completely different. It's hit main street first, industries like hospitality for one have been completely shut down and that impact might take longer to be felt on the share market. It certainly touches them, but it's not as immediate as the businesses are smaller and they're owned more locally. So I just wonder, trying to go from the macro to what's probably as micro as it gets, you know, these are businesses that trade on on their customers being social, they're venues to bring us together, so, how do you see their fate from a broader uh, sort of entrepreneurial perspective? How could they be more resilient? Uh, is there a way that we could we could help them adapt?
1: I don't think we can. You know, around the world, we're seeing fiscal policy uh, measures that amount to you know ten percent of GDP. You know, they're, they're massive, massive injections of capital and support, and that's pretty much all we can do. You know. Banks are forgiving debts at the moment, or or they're deferring the the requirement to pay the debts. That's one issue, uh, which is great. We've got people being paid not to work. We've almost got a universal wage going on. I think the government's doing everything that it possibly can to keep people interested in business. But what does somebody do that that was running a business, supporting 50 people and their mortgages, and they've had to lay them all off? They're not going to get their full wage. The business owner is not going to get a grant from the government equivalent to the profit that they would have been able to take. Uh, so everything slows down. and well, We are talking about essentially a, a Western hibernation of business and we'll come out of it. Don't get me wrong, we'll come out of it. But you brought up the GFC. The GFC was a financial event uh, and it really was people worried about the economy here, people are worried about their health, and it's a very different thing. You know, it's one thing for people to worry about the economy. It's an entirely another when they're worried that they're going to die. I wrote that in The Australian back in early Feb. And, you know, my, my view is that, that that's going to affect people's behaviour, not permanently, but not as temporarily as just concern about the economy. When you're worried about the economy, you still go about your daily business. When you are worried that you might die and if you catch something you don't go about your daily business. Everything changes. Having said that, though, let me say this. If you and I were grizzly bears and we went and hibernated in our caves, you know, when we wake up in three years' time, we won't be talking about coronavirus. It will have passed. We'll be talking about something else, and it might be the consequence uh, of the slow economic slowdown. Uh, but to the extent that this is a crash like all others, I think you know, I think it's wise to remember that we recover from every market crash. The shortest was about, I don't know, three or four months, and the longest was 24 months. You know, we'll we'll get through this as well, and the market will recover, and it's really, really important to be ready to take advantage of declines if further declines actually occur. Rather than fearing them, we should be looking forward to them. And I know that sounds appalling when people are literally dying at the moment, But, you know, I I can't do much about saving people's lives. I can do a lot about saving people's wealth and making sure that they're set to grow their wealth from which they can do good things later if they want to. So my job is to actually make sure we preserve people's capital and then grow it. And the way to do that is to be ready to take advantage of lower prices that are likely to occur.
0: And of course, that's the value investor's perspective, and it's one that's been Pretty tough, as you mentioned uh, up front, with a 10 year bull run that's really prioritized growth stocks. So, can you give us a quick rundown of value investing at its core and whether you're seeing value in the market at the moment?
1: It really is important to realize that you can approach the market one of two ways. You can approach it as a business owner and say, Right, I'm going to use the stock market to buy pieces of extraordinary businesses. Or you can approach the stock market as a, as a place. Like a casino where you, you literally just uh, bet on the ups and downs of stocks. You know, I think this one's going to go up, I'll bet on that. I think this one's going to go down, I won't bet on that and so on. One is gambling and one is investing. And so the first step is to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be an investor rather than a gambler. I'm less concerned then about what's going up and down. And I'm more concerned about which are the really good businesses I'd like to own for the long term. And the best businesses to own are those that have a competitive advantage. And if you buy a business with a competitive advantage, it generally generates really high rates of return on capital. So it might have a billion dollars of equity on its balance sheet. And if it's generating $200 million of profit, that's a 20% return on equity. And you wanna find those sorts of businesses that can generate very high rates of return on equity. If you put together a portfolio filled with those businesses that can do that in a sustainable way or that can continue to do it over a long period of time, um, then the reason they can do it over a long period of time is because they've got a competitive advantage. They're doing something that other companies can't replicate, so they're able to maintain high rates of profitability. That is very desirable for investors. And even though the share price might occasionally go down because of factors unrelated to the business for example, coronavirus or whatever, they will bounce and recover and you'll make a lot of money out of those. So value investing is about finding those businesses that I've just described, those high-quality businesses, but buying them when nobody else wants them, to buy them when everyone else is scared that they're going to go broke. And your job, obviously, is to identify, to make sure that you're that they're not going to go broke because some can. And in this environment, you know, any company with debt, for example, is at higher risk of going broke than a company without debt, You know, provided companies can survive this kind of crisis, and provided they're high quality, that means that in normal circumstances they generate high rates of return on capital, then you're going to do really well. And that's value investing in a nutshell.
0: That's great. I've always uh, really resonated from that perspective. That's always been my approach. And especially given that on this show, we talk a lot about ESG investing and sustainable investing. And that seems like a similar overlay. So how do those considerations of sustainability risks and, and impacts fit in with uh, the core of value investing?
1: Sustainability I bring into, you know, the whole idea around socially responsible investing and uh, or, or what I call SRI. And I don't want to own weapons manufacturers. I don't want to own companies that destroy forests. Uh, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with those sorts of businesses. The problem that we've got is that the economy is so interconnected. It's very, very difficult to draw a line that everybody can agree with. And I'm not saying this is a cop-out. It just means that I, as an investor, might say to you, for example, I might say, I don't drink. uh, Therefore, I don't want to own alcohol companies and yet there are other other investors out there where they, they don't draw the line in their socially responsible investing uh, universe. They don't draw the line at alcohol companies. They're quite happy to imbibe. They're quite happy to have a social drink, and so that's not their issue. So I think the solution is that various funds simply have to put their stake in the ground or their flag in the sand and say, this is what I stand for. This is what I believe in. This is how I'm going to invest, and I'm not going to be right for everybody, but I'm going to attract those people who agree with me. And that's totally acceptable. That's totally fine. But it is important to recognize that you could be a socially responsible investor and I can be a socially responsible investor and we can still invest in different things.
0: Well, that's right. And if you take that values approach, then there's the potential for different funds to have different ways of seeing it. But I think ESG is the interesting one. It's really the bridge. It's more of a risk overlay and pretty much everyone's focusing on it now. But previously, there was this issue of, well, we can't take environmental issues into consideration because we have a fiduciary duty. But that seems to have pivoted now, where it's more saying that if you're not considering issues like climate change, then that's in fact a breach of your fiduciary duty. Do you have a sense for that happening uh, in your universe?
1: Look, I think that's going to happen. I think it's only a matter of time. It doesn't exist today, but there's definitely what I call the the big mo has already happened. So that's the momentum is definitely heading that way. And what's happening, of course, is that shareholder groups, for example, super funds and endowment funds and so on, they're demanding that their fund managers uh, invest in companies that meet their criteria. uh, And that forces the fund managers then to only supply capital to those companies that meet that criteria. And so what you find is over time, Capital is pulled away from those companies that don't satisfy those requirements or the ESG criteria. What ends up happening is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The companies that don't meet the ESG criteria suddenly have greater financial risk because they're not being supported financially. That's why I said to you right at the start, it's a sort of inevitable. The big mo is already underway. Uh, so I think I think you are going to see that sort of socially conscious investing it's going to work its way through the investment infrastructure such that companies that don't meet that ESG criteria that is imposed by investors, they'll be financially riskier anyway because they can't get funding, for example. And consequently, it's going to be self-fulfilling.
0: Are you hearing your clients talk about it more and more? Have you felt that trend rising?
1: No, I have to be uh, frank with you. No, uh, not at this stage. But we, you know, we uh, have a universe, an audience that I suspect responds to, you know, social criteria outside of their investments with us. I think the reason why we haven't heard much is they're expecting me to behave a certain way anyway. I think it's really important that the fund manager who's managing the money is socially aware and socially responsible, uh, and environmentally aware and environmentally responsible, and then eventually, you know, that that filters up and down. But at the moment, I don't get many inquiries for it at all.
0: So going deeper on that, from the inquiries you are getting, have the phones been running hot with clients worried about the current situation? You guys were obviously well prepared for it, but what's the feeling uh, on the ground from your investors?
1: We wouldn't be a good litmus test for that. We have had the opposite experience. We've been preparing our clients for the last year and a half to put cash aside and be ready to invest more when the market cracks. And now that that's happening, uh, those investors are calling us to invest more money with us. So on a gross basis, we've actually got
0: inflows. Good stuff. So that's something you've been focused on for a couple of years. But then the bull run of the past decade has been running since the GFC. And there's this interesting macroeconomic factor that I'm kind of obsessed with. And that's around central banks and, and whether through a lack of will or ability, they haven't been able to normalize interest rates and so asset prices have gone up property prices have gone up but interest rates and wages haven't now it's obviously fueled these asset prices so i guess it feels like in some ways this crash was inevitable but why do you think we've had that unique monetary situation that doesn't seem to be going anywhere
1: the simple answer is governments and central banks have wanted to avoid any anything approaching a recession since the gfc so without the government intervention And central bank intervention during the global financial crisis, we would have had something approximating a depression without question. You might remember there were runs on banks, people were lining up to get their money out of banks, funds were closing down and preventing redemptions, Uh, banks were failing and people were losing money. That is the cliff of a depression right there. So, in order to avoid that, central banks. Pumped money into the economy, they pumped money into the financial system that we know now historically that had the desired effect in the sense that it prevented a depression or a recession. What it didn't do though is get the economy operating at kind of a normal, in a normal sort of state. It's constantly been relying on being propped up by ever declining interest rates and constant support from central banks fiscally. Oh, sorry, governments fiscally and central banks monetarily. In other words, it hasn't worked. All the intervention has done is caused asset prices to go up, and it's caused the wealth gap between those who had assets and those who didn't to widen. And so, lower interest rates are very positive for asset prices. There's an inverse relationship between asset prices and interest rates. If you reduce interest rates, assets go up. Simple as that. And if you've got assets, you win. If you don't have assets, you lose. And that's what's been happening As interest rates have gone down for 37 years, now to zero virtually. Who's won? People who've had assets. Who's lost? People who are renting and people who uh, don't have any savings, who haven't been able to buy an asset. They've lost. The gap has widened. And the government realised that. And I was talking about that in the press last year to say that we really do need fiscal policy to come to the fore now and we need to increase tax cuts for low-income earners, lower-middle-income earners as well. And the reason is that those people who are on lower incomes or more moderate incomes spend a higher proportion of their incomes in the economy and that increases the velocity of money. And so there's only so much that lower interest rates could do. We were at the end of last year, we'd reached the end I think of the ability to push that string any further.
0: Is it simply then a matter of populism? that They're unwilling to have the, the creative destruction of a recession, so they just keep pumping more money in? That's exactly right. It's quite reckless, so we're now in a recession and we've got no monetary ammunition, and we're pumping out hundreds of millions of dollars of stimulus, so where to from here?
1: It's a great question. You know, the bull case is that monetary policy will work, fiscal policy will kick in, um valuations have already reset so share prices have already dropped and uh, you know social distancing and healthcare policies will be effective the real economy will adapt you know there will be no geopolitical impacts that's the bull case that it'll all work you know th- the idea that everything opens in 6 or 10 weeks everyone goes back to their old jobs and the economy's back to normal pretty soon and then and there and, and as you say you've still got interest rates at zero so that means everyone will go back to borrowing money and it'll all be good. That's that's the bull case. The bear case is that, you know, it gets much worse. Unemployment goes to 20% or 30%. Nothing goes back to normal for at least a, a couple of years. And then you also have a demand shock uh, as well. And so the lockdown on businesses, you know, that causes people to be unemployed and they're not buying anything. Then what happens is all the fiscal policy that you like has no effect. Handing people $1,000 or $750 a fortnight, well, there's not much point because they're locked at home and they can't spend the money anyway. And yes, the first week or two of a lockdown feels like a holiday and everyone gets online and starts ordering stuff. And hey, you know, I've got time to shop around for new runners and whatever. But well, now I've got those new runners. I can't actually go out and run in them. I'm not allowed. So I don't need to buy any more stuff. And so you get this really serious demand shock. So I think the jury's out in terms of where, which way we go. I've always leaned to the conservative side. I've always been you know, concerned about the downside. And mind you, I'm fortunate that I've been able to take advantage of when prices have dropped a lot. But I think the main question that's outstanding that I can't answer for you today is just how long the second order effects of the lockdown are with us. Uh, they will be with us for a time. It won't be 5 weeks or 4 weeks or 3 weeks it'll be months and it could be even a year but you know it's going to be some time before we recover and it will be some time before we recover fully it'll be even longer before we recover fully having said that the silver lining in all of that is that asset prices will bottom and start going up long before we get to the point where the economy is recovering the market casts its shadow before it and so You don't want to wait until the economy is recovering and everything looks good before you go and buy assets. You'll miss a large part of the recovery. Uh, You want to actually be invested ahead of that. You want to actually invest some money when there's maximum panic, when it looks like it's going to get really bad and the market's reacting to the worst case scenario.
0: So from those two cases, the bull case and the bear case, we still have this this debt bomb in the background and when I say debt bomb I mean we have yields close to zero we've never had so much debt in the world and this is the question the economist in me has had for the past 10 years it's very difficult to find a clear answer it's a tricky subject and perhaps I'm asking the wrong questions maybe you can help me with that are we just pushing that debt bomb further down the road and if so will there be a recession in three five ten years time that will be the big one where this 37-year bull run for bond prices will, will just blow up?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a couple of things you've sort of mixed in uh, and blended together. There's an inflation question, which will have an impact on bonds. There's a currency question for the United States dollar, You know whether or not it remains the reserve currency. That could have an effect on bonds. I think it will remain the re- reserve currency, because while it's the US is engaging in activity that should uh, reduce the US dollar's value to other investors. The reality is every other country is doing the same thing. And so they're all going down together. So on a relative basis, the US dollar still looks good. If that scenario transpired, that would result in a bond crash. But I think you can't solve the problem of debt with more debt. And I think that's fundamentally what you're asking. We've tried to solve the GFC with more debt, but it was debt that caused the GFC. And so what happens now is is interesting. I haven't settled on one particular scenario. There are a variety of different possibilities or different paths that we we could take. Obviously, you know, I'm leaning towards the idea that we end up with an economy on life support for an extended period of time. I think that's that's where we get to. You can still invest and you can still invest quite well because the market will continually go from being optimistic to pessimistic to optimistic to pessimistic again. It won't be that steady state that we saw for the last decade where markets just go up every year. We won't have that uh, for a long time. And I think that's the environment we're likely to have. I don't know whether we ever get to the point where all the debt's paid back and it all looks good again. You know, I'm thinking now as I say that, I'm thinking of Japan where I visited recently. You know, they they've got a situation where you know a large part of their population doesn't want to invest in assets anymore because assets have always gone down. Where I was staying in Hakaba at one point, not while I was there in January, but only a couple of years ago, property prices there peaked during the Nagano Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Japan. That was in 1998. Uh, and the prices a couple of years ago were 70% lower than where they were in 98 for real estate. And you know maybe we end up in an environment not necessarily where that happens but we just no longer can safely expect markets to rally every single year without question you know we get quite lumpy and choppy markets for all assets and that means patience works value investing works really well value investing works best in challenging markets and i think we're going to end up in you know more challenging times ahead
0: yeah thank you for that i think it's it's good every now and then to go deep on some fixed income and bond issues some people may not have followed it too much or may have switched off when, when we said the word bonds. But I think property is an interesting proxy for that, that people may have more of a touch point for and may be able to relate to a little better. How do you feel property will weather this crisis?
1: Well, it all comes down to how many people are forced to sell. You've got to remember that you and I, I, I own my own home, I'm assuming you do too. We're recording this podcast at the moment and um, you know, we're not buying and selling houses. We're not the ones that are influencing house prices. What we think doesn't matter. It's what happens next weekend that will determine the property price for everyone. And if you get a bunch of people forced to sell, you see at the moment job losses have really been confined to casual labour, particularly in hospitality and in retail. So it's part-time and casual labour people who have lost their jobs. A large portion of those people rent. They don't own their own property Some do, of course, and there'll be anecdotal stories of people who do, but a large portion of them rent. And so that's probably not going to have a huge impact on property prices, except that if they can't pay their rent, then it might be that the owners of the property, I'm thinking about this as we work through it together, the owners of the property who were relying on that rent to pay the mortgage, they can't pay the mortgage. Now, if they're forced to sell, that would put pressure on property prices. But the banks are already applying leniency to the repayment of mortgages for people in difficulty. And the government, I'm sure, has been having a lot of conversations with the banks about that. I think you're not going to find banks foreclosing on people in financial difficulty because they've lost their job or they've lost their tenant or their tenant can't pay because the government has said you can't evict someone if they don't pay their rent in these emergency times. So there's a lot of moving parts that we haven't, you know, we haven't thought of before. You know, if it was a dog-eat-dog world and capitalism was ruling the roost and we didn't have government intervention telling landlords they couldn't evict, then you would probably see property prices collapsing. But because we're getting government uh, legislation coming through, preventing landlords from exerting power on tenants and so on, that changes the dynamic very much. So, I don't know to what extent we see property declining. I would say that the pressure is definitely not up. We're not going to see property prices rising a lot in this environment if, in fact, we won't see them rise much at all. But whether we get a collapse in property prices, that's a separate question. Uh, and, and it's it's one that I'm I think the jury's still out on. I don't think we see a major collapse in property. We might see some downward pressure, but not a major collapse.
0: And I guess there's not much threat of interest rates going up in the near future.
1: Yeah, you can forget about that for a while. It all pivots on a vaccine, I think. It doesn't pivot on a flattening of the curve. It pivots on a vaccine. If we get a vaccine and people are vaccinated en masse, then everyone goes back to work. Everyone starts earning money again. It will take time to get back to normal. You know, for example, there are sectors that will respond really quickly. For example, travel. People will book holidays because they've been cooped up in their houses for so long. They'll want to go on a holiday and they'll be allowed to. I know anecdotally, I can share a story with you. One of our team has a sibling who works for a large shipping company, global shipping company overseas. And that shipping company sent out an offer uh, to people because they've cancelled all of the cruises. So they sent out an offer to their passengers. They said, you've got a choice. We'll give you a full cash refund for the trip that you booked or we'll give you a credit for a future holiday worth double the value. And more than 99% accepted the future trip for double the value. Uh, They took a credit. We know people will get back to travelling very, very quickly, which is why we own Sydney airports. It's why we own ALX, which is uh, Atlas Arteria owns a uh, a share of two and a half thousand kilometres of toll roads in France. Things will get back to approximating normal in terms of travel pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting what you say about flattening the curve versus finding a vaccine. These are the, the leading indicators that everyone's watching, and there's clearly a lot of depth and nuance to it all and a more tricky question are you guys watching pharmaceutical companies um in terms of a vaccine do you think that this will be a private entity that will come up with it and sell it on the market Uh, will it be subsidized will it come from some sort of competition from a a wealthy beneficiary how do you think that will play out
1: i think it's too hard to pick the winner it doesn't matter who finds a vaccine we all win when a vaccine is found there's a lot of money billions and billions and billions of dollars being thrown by governments at the solution to try and find that solution and at healthcare more generally. And so we will get one and I don't know where it's going to come from. So I'm not I'm not even tempted to make a guess as to who's gonna find it. But look, I'll be grateful when they do. It'll be good for asset prices for everyone.
0: Definitely, definitely. Now, thank you for all your insights today. But lastly, can you please recommend a book for us, something to help people understand the markets? Uh, we've obviously got your book, Valuable, is one I can recommend highly. Uh, but perhaps you've got something else, maybe something to help the, the bond market geeks to go a little deeper?
1: I think everyone would benefit from reading a, a book by a guy named Roger Lowenstein called The Making of an American Capitalist. And it's a, the story of Warren Buffett's life. It is really worthwhile reading because the, the thing you will get from that that's most valuable is how to think like an investor.
0: Very good. And of course, Warren Buffett is the original value investor. So that will be a touch point many people uh, will recognize and can relate to. All right. Good stuff, Roger. Really appreciate your time. Please keep well and, uh, and do stay in touch.
1: Okay. Good to talk with you.